as the placenta is coming out, you give birth to this huge guilt thing that lasts for a very long time. That you feel like you've just damaged your firstborn by bringing a sibling into the world. Normal, normal, normal. And we just have to work through it. And then when they start to react and have poor behavior, which is very normal, either immediately or at about four months after the baby's been born, we start to see the toddlers and the three-year-olds really struggle. That the guilt that the moms feel is gargantuan. And in that guilt, they start to push away their partner. Hello there. Welcome to Baby Bumps to Littles podcast. We're grateful you're taking the time to hang out with us in a supportive space to talk about all things from pregnancy to babies and caring for the little ones up to age six. There are so many different stages and everything changes so fast. So much of parenting is about taking care of your family. And this is also for taking care of you and helping to bring joy into your life. Consider us your best friends. No topic is off limits. We have conversations with amazing guests and experts about all the things we need to know from navigating your new life postpartum to protecting your peace. This podcast is about all topics from the pregnancy through to the kindergarten stage, including the secret to a full night of sleep. Being a parent can be the most rewarding and beautiful experience, but is also super messy, stressful, overwhelming, and exhausting at times especially if you're sleep deprived. We're your friends and your community because we're on this journey together. It takes a village and we're here to remind you that we're never alone in parenting. We're with you through all the fields and to support you at every stage. Check out the Thriving Family Podcast where we handle topics for school-age kids and above. This podcast is made possible by amazing listeners like you and we provide new content on Wednesday every week. Follow us on Instagram at littles for daily reminders and fun ideas. Subscribe so you don't miss a beat, leave a review and share it with someone who needs to hear it. Let's get started creating the life we want. I have been so lucky to have Nanette Brown in my life. I found her when I was feeling so lost and alone in parenting, and she is a parent educator for many, many years, has raised seven children, six of her own, one adopted, and has done it with grace and just being so generous and sharing what has worked for her and where it's been hard. And I've appreciated this so much. And I love how she covers topics. She will talk not how to do things, but what is good to do. And we covered a topic today that I am so passionate about, which is connection. It is the key to everything. It's such a good basis for a family. And she has so many good things that she brought up her Nanette nuggets about the topic. So I hope you get as much of this as I have with Nanette, my life. I love sharing my favorite people in life with you guys. So enjoy. Nanette, we are so, so thrilled to have you on today. You are one of my favorite people and have been such a huge blessing in my life with raising our family, our kids everything. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you. I feel honored to be with you, girl. And I was wondering if we could just paint a picture for everyone listening of how you started with parent education, because that's where I met you. And parent education is such a great thing. It was run through the Presbyterian Church. It was so great. It wasn't that you guys were telling us how to parent. It was just talking about what was relevant to the age of the child of each class. And it was, it was a saving grace. It was a community. It was parents in the same stage and age 
And you just as this wonderful, loving, amazing presence. I mean, I think you saved me during my survival years. <laughs> well, thank you. I, it's been a privilege to do life with you. So yeah, my background is in child development. And then I went into education, taught high school, thought I was going to be a social worker. And then when I was teaching high school, got married and got pregnant with my first child and decided that I wanted to stay home. So as I was staying home, I started attending parent education myself. And so I was in classes for about 12 years. And then when they found out by then I was having my sixth child and when they found out that I had the background in child development and in education, they said, would you be at all interested in um, teaching any classes? And I said, wow, I, I would really love to. So I started in, you know, with just doing one class while I was raising my own family. And here we are 28 years later, and I'm still teaching and I love it. It's the thing I'm most passionate about and I may have all this background and information in my head, but really what I learned the most, I learned in the school of hard knocks mm -hmm. because I gave birth to six children and then adopted a seventh. And so life has been full. It's been beautiful and full and hard and difficult, a uh, special need child in there, an adopted child in there, and a very difficult marriage all along the way. So in that, I would say anything that I ever bring to the table or have to offer anybody really came from the School of Hard Knocks. Well, so, so. true. And I think that's what's part a huge part of why you've touched so many of moms in such a special way mm -hmm. is that you are open. There is no, you're not textbook. You are just really <laughs> vulnerable about what really is going on and the and focus on like the core, not all the minutiae. It's like, what's, what's really important. And I felt like there was all these parenting books and there was this, and how do you deal with a tantrum and da, 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 da. And you were just this calm in the parenting overwhelm and storm. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember just being in your first time in your class. And I was, I had heard about you because you're just a legend with anyone that's had any experience with you is like, oh my gosh, Nanette. I just remember after I had my first class with you, I was like, people need to know about this. Like they need to know there's a better way that's just more mm. calm and more centered and what it's really about. Because I, so many things that you've said have just resonated and got me through. I mean, number one is that you say you're 51%. And can you just tell that really quick? I, I mean, that is just huge in itself. <laughs> well, like most parents, I got so confused because I'm a reader. And I started reading and there were every extreme telling mm -hmm. me that that was the way to raise a healthy child. It was so confusing to me. I was hanging out with a group of parents who were homeschooling and because of where we lived, were homeschooling and sleeping with their kids and long-term nursing. And it was a whole thing in itself. And then I started hanging out in a play group and in classes with people that couldn't wait to get their kids in preschool and I need a break and I'm going back to work and I absolutely do not want them in my bed. And I started reading everything and everything in between. And I was so confused. Mm 
And so that's really where it started for me was like, okay, everybody says their way and they write a book about it is the right way. But what do I honestly believe about my children and about children developmentally? And what I believe is we will make a lot of mistakes as parents. And that's where I came up with the 51%. We just need to do it right the majority of time. And 51% is the majority. We just just beat ourselves up so badly that, you know, we're constantly making mistakes. Well, the good news is we all are. And the best part is, is when we make the mistakes is when we can have this connective repair happen. And that's where we humble ourselves and it doesn't matter how old our kids are. You start when they're little tiny people saying mommy was wrong. I should not have lost, you know, my marbles over this. It's not really that important. You are more important. And the repair can add so much that we can take the, the errors and turn them into really positive connective things. So if we focus on the majority of the time, 51% doing things, saying the right thing, being available, connecting rather than going right to the correcting, all those kinds of things first, we're going to raise great kids. But it starts with us being available and humble, you know, that we're going to screw up. So, And what's so great and so crazy on the other hand is no one's saying that. No one's out there just saying, you know what, you're gonna mess up, and this is how <laughs> to fix it because it's inevitable. It is. Human beings, there is no like, you know. I mean, we only know what our parents did, which was thirty some odd years before we're in this, and I don't yes. have a lot of it. Also, you you have all this new wave of parenting, and like you said, you have everything from like the you know extremes of both ends of the kids. Yes. And that are like, and nothing wrong with any of them of like, okay. Hey, I want to work. I don't want to stay home. And then the person that's like, Oh my gosh, I want to make all my own baby food. And then you're just trying to find yourself in the middle or where you land. And you don't know because you've never done it before. And so that uh, honestly, I think I came home and cried happy survival tears <laughs> after your class. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm not beating myself up. Like yeah. I'm giving myself grace other people are messing up. Like no one tells you that there's no talk about that, you know, and everyone's so scared to be judged on how they're doing it. Mm -hmm. That they're just holding their shit together so carefully that it's just like so sad because you lack the community when that happens. So Mm -hmm. in I walk, (laughs) Nanette's like lovely, caring, warm, amazing room. And perfect. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm totally imperfect. And I'm like, Oh, hello. Where have all these people been my whole, yeah. like whole parenting life? And it's just, it totally, yeah. it was such an aha moment for me. Right. And I came home and called all of my friends that had kids. And I was like, guess what? <laughs> it's okay to mess up and we're okay. And our kids are going to be okay. And then we yeah. can get closer because we talk about how we messed up and you can make up and bond during it. And I think they all were just like, Hallelujah. I mean, it was just so, so changing for me. And so there's so many Nanette nuggets, I like to call them, that there is. But I love talking about your foundational pieces, which I know the huge one is connection and attachment. 
and where people, especially starting their families is it's a big one. It's like how much is too much, how much is too little. And not only connection with our kids, also with our husband and how that new aspect goes, because here you were as a twosome and then you're growing. And then also when you have the second child, and I think this is a big topic that rocks a lot of families that not a lot of people are talking about. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. And because I do, my focus is the zero to three-year-olds generally in my classes. And that's the age bracket that I want to grab people because I want to get them before we start believing a lot of myths. And there are cultural myths that come with parenting. There are our own background myths of what our family of origins told us, how it has to look, you know. And so everybody kind of comes in with this thought of what it's supposed to look like. And I feel like we miss the most important thing of the human child and the human relationship, which has never changed. Children have not changed. The culture around us have changed. The messages have changed. The human child has not changed. So when the human baby comes, just like many animal species, What we really need is that connection and attachment. And it's gotten a bad rap. And I've watched through the last 30 years of it, watching the pendulum swing on what that means, what it doesn't mean. I remember when Time Magazine did that front cover article, and it had a three-year-old or three-and-a-half-year-old standing on a stool breastfeeding. And that was the attachment. And I was like, wait a second, (laughs) that really is giving this a bad, you know, a bad name. So anyway, the main thing we have learned developmentally over the decades through just tons of research is at the core, what the human being needs is to be connected with its primary caregiver, whoever that might be. And what that means is that this primary caregiver in the very beginning is extremely responsive. There's a lot of touch. There's a lot of eye contact. There's a lot of responsiveness to crying. There's responsiveness to cues of I've had enough or I'm hungry. So it starts there. But if we keep nurturing it, rather than thinking that we have to make them work into our schedule. And I am not anti-schedule by any stretch of the imagination. But in those beginning six months, we need so desperately to be available and to be attentive. And so in that, what does that really look like? And so that's where the beginning of this deep connection. I remember somebody giving me a uh, visual for it one time of when a child is born, we hold on to our end of the umbilical cord, even if eventually they cut theirs, which eventually does happen. And we are trying to raise children that can leave us healthily and successfully. But as, as parents, we need in those beginning years to really hold on to being their compass, being their go-to person, being, you know, their rock and their available person. So that's so good. And then I love also what you say, you know, past six months, how connection happens, how you 
have done it with multiple, how you've had seven different kids, oh my goodness, such different personalities and how you connect with them. And I love some of your ideas because I think for people, the word connection just means different things. And yes. so I would like giving them a visual because it really helps me um, of how that can happen. Okay. The, the phrase that I use the most often, because this is what helped me, there were two things. One of them was this idea of really being the student of each of my children, not my children at large, <laughs> that in our family, you know, but of each of our children. And my firstborn and secondborn could not have been more polar opposite, a son and then a daughter. The son would not sleep if someone was holding him. Has anyone ever heard of a baby that wouldn't sleep if it was being held? I didn't discover it until he was about seven and a half weeks old, but I put him down and then he slept through the night. I did nothing. And I just thought I was the greatest parent on the planet. But then I realized that still to this day, <laughs> this son of mine is the most independent human being that really kind of wants to do his own life. Then I give birth to my daughter. She wants to be back inside my womb for the first 12 months of her life. She does not want to be anywhere that she is not touching me. So in that extreme, I had to really be watching who my children were, who, who they came as, what the design was that they already, the nature versus nurture, they really did come with very different personalities, one highly sensitive and one not so sensitive, which has, was not easy to raise. Mm -hmm. So in that, I really had to see who they were and what their individual needs were, which meant I couldn't have a one way of doing it which would have been so easy if I could have, but right. I couldn't. Right. And that, it does make it tricky. Cause I remember I got so rocked going from one to two. Yes. You're like, Oh gosh, is everyone, do they feel full? Did I give them enough attention? Yes. And then learning later that, Oh yeah, they're, they're very different needs and different things. But mm -hmm. how, what advice do you usually tell your young moms or new moms of how to handle that and kind of the different connection ways with different personalities and how to like, how to handle that in a day of different personalities. Well, I always try to encourage parents because we don't have a lot of time, especially if you're working, even if you're working from home and then you have multiple children and it's nearly impossible, you know, to have moments to yourself, but to be able to try to kind of do it in increments, uh, 10 to 15 minutes of connection time with each of your children. Now, as they get older, it gets a little more complicated because of them being gone a, a large portion of the day to school. But that's why we really need to make sure that once everybody's home, that we do try to set aside that individual time where there is eye contact involved and a lot of active listening, which means asking some questions and letting them express how they're feeling. And then as they get even older, it's really unfortunate in that they still need it, but generally they want to do it at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> and, and then it gets really hard. But with little people, it really is a matter of knowing them. So being a student of your child means for us to observe a lot and watch how they interact and react. 
in our home, with other people, to strangers, those kinds of things. And then in that, trying to figure out where is maybe their gifting of things that they really are interested in. So if I sat with my second born a girl and brought up pieces of paper, even as a very little person, like a year old, and gave her some of those big crayons, she would just color all over the paper for hours and we could sit and talk. And I would just, you know, in her own little babble. Now, my son would never have sat still for any of that. So with him, it was going out right away as a little person in the dirt, on the scooter, you know, those kinds of things. And that was the side-by-side connection and talking. And, and so you have to know each child and what they're needing and what m- means connection for them. Because what means connection for us as parents might not be the same thing that's connected for your child. If you're a, a talker, you may have a child who doesn't love talking. That's not yeah. their thing. Yeah. And we have and to be aware. I, like you, had a my firstborn was very much not like me. And I was like, is she happy? Is she like my, but it made me, it brought up a lot of things because yeah. I thought I was doing a bad job because she just wasn't showing the tells that I show when I'm happy and things are good. And I remember just like learning how to deal with that and being like, oh, she's good. This is just her way of going about things. Yeah. And I love how you also brought up because I remember hearing this and I didn't know. So any of those boy moms out there, and you were saying that it's so good when you ever have a conversation, even like from the get-go or just want, you know, asking them questions or interacting with a boy. Do you want to say that really quick? Because Yeah. Say- it, and it's the same for husbands is they do far better side by side than I, they do with you giving them eye contact because they often feel like they're in trouble. And so we as moms and women, you know, we try to get in there and we're trying to sit across from them. But you'll find that little boys talk a lot when they're in the car and you're not looking at them. And, you know, so they do. It's the side by side more than it is the eye contact with little girls. It's the opposite. That doesn't mean little boys don't need to learn how to have eye contact with people or have you give them eye contact. But it's sometimes when you really want to be talking with them, let's say with a three-year-old, something's happened at school and you've heard about it and you want to hear their feelings about it, best not to do it staring at them because they probably won't be able to get to the depths of their feelings. So I think this is so good because I wish I heard it early on and I'm so grateful I did because I would do it so wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, it's helped so much with my husband too, because any big conversation, I'm like, let's walk, let's do a task, like let, or lay in bed and, you know, just look at the ceiling, whatever, but it's really helped. And I had no idea. It's like, what you don't know, you don't know. And I I love painting those pictures of those, just those little nuggets that just make the world a difference when you're parenting these different genders and different kids. I love those. And you have like so many of them. (laughs) So let me bring one thing about touch because touch is hugely connective for most people, unless you have a child like my firstborn who didn't, doesn't love being touched. It's just not his thing. But what he did like is that I came to find out is he would like if I put my hand up his shirt when he was watching TV and I'd scratch his back, 
because there was no eye contact that feels good to everybody doesn't it you know that kind of thing so it was that form of he's not a big hugger he didn't want me kissing him all the time and I was doing all those things and then come to find out that that didn't mean anything to him Mm -hmm. so remember touch is huge we just need to figure out how each of our children receive touch do they want you just to sit next to them and hold their hand you know everybody's got something different and the other thing is eye contact both of those are very connective so you start with those with the little tiny people as you're observing them figuring out what is connective for them it's so good it's so helpful and then I would love to also talk about husbands because it is such an adjustment for when you are starting a family. And it, I think most people like myself went and in, go into survival mode. I mean, you're just kind of going through the motions yeah. and where the foundation of the relationship is still so important. It's hard because you feel like you have all these people to please and that have needs and you want it. It's not that it, it's a have to. You're just like, oh, gosh, I was taking care, keeping this one alive and feeding them. And <laughs> yeah. But like, you OK? Yeah. You OK over there? And yeah. so I just I, I didn't know what you talked to a lot of your classes because you are you are. I always say you're on the front lines. You are every year nonstop with those new mamas. Yeah. of zero to three, which is, you know, you're, you're hearing from them. Like, what are the pain points? What are the problems? What, where are the stressors? And we know what we went through, but is, you know, is that a part for them that's huge and really kind of hard to handle at the beginning? And what do you say to them? It's a very rare couple that your world didn't get rocked when a baby comes. Wanted, happy, trying for years to have. It's, it doesn't matter. Surprise. And then the baby comes and everybody's like, what the hell just happened to my life? So it's a death to self because it's the most selfless thing we'll ever do is raise another child or raise a child. But relationally, it's one of the first big rocks that happen. And so it's like the mobile that's hanging and dangling over the crib. All of a sudden, it just gets and so the most common thing in my classes every year, I do a dad's day where I'm hoping that the partner will come and then we can talk about, you know, what do they need for encouragement to participate, you know, those kinds of things to stay actively involved in the child's life. Because often the men feel pretty much like failures to start off with. There can be a million reasons for that. There are, there are other parents who are not thrilled with this whole first year of life. They don't know what to do with them. They scare them. They feel like they're going to break them. So there's a lot of that. You get dads that babies aren't their thing. You know, they, they thought they were going to get somebody that would kick a ball with them almost right away. So you have that. And, and then it's this, they've lost their partner in a love affair with somebody else. And it's exactly how it's supposed to be <laughs> because mamas are supposed to fall in love with these new people, but it really is quite disconcerting to the partner because mm -hmm. they feel left out. So really our job description is how can we do all that physically sleep deprivation requires and still pay attention and do together 
this whole process. So it really depends on whether the men want to participate right away. Do they feel comfortable with the baby? Um, it's hard if they feel scolded. I'll use myself as an example. I had no idea that I was going to turn into a mama bear when my first child came. And I was the era, uh, era of cloth diapers and pins. And I will never forget just eating my husband alive because he had pinned the diaper where if the pin had popped open, it would have been facing the kidneys or the liver. And so, yeah, it, it, but it was the reality of what we used to do with diapers. And so he right away felt like he was going to get in trouble for everything he did. And it was my error. I wish I had known that that kind of response would have sent him the other direction, but I didn't. And oftentimes men talk about getting lower and lower and lower on the totem pole with every child that comes. I get less time, less attention. I feel like I have less value. And those tend to be the husbands that maybe struggle with that anyway, but have needed help being invited into how do you do family life? How do you do small children? And how, what is a good way for like, especially families starting out, or I love that even if you have a one-year-old and you're finding yourself in this situation that you can like tomorrow shift it and yeah. be like, okay, I need to start talking like this or, cause you're right. There is, I mean, I was lucky. My husband was in, but I didn't know. I don't think he even knew if he'd yeah. be in infants. We were kind of like, ah, I don't know. We'll see how this goes, <laughs> and then, you know, but, uh, how, how should, a wife kind of incorporate her husband into, because it is obviously we're feeding them. We're, you know, the main caretaker and their role is huge. And, but how do, how is a good way to really involve them from the get-go and make them feel part of the team? Well, if you can have conversations, of course, when, when you're pregnant, that's really where it would start to say, I don't know what this is going to be like because we don't really know what kind of baby we're going to get. I mean, some people get really easy babies and there's not much trans transition, but I have to say that is the minority. Often, you know, they come kind of pre-programmed in their, I mean, just basic allergic to anything you eat. If you're nursing or they're allergic to the formula or whatever, you don't plan on that, but it happens to a lot of people. So if you can talk with your partner, in the beginning, before the baby comes. And this doesn't matter what number of child this is, because I felt like, and I'm usually trying to encourage people, that with every baby, the music changes, and you have to learn a whole new dance step. It doesn't matter if it was number one or number seven. The music switched and a whole new dance step, because the dynamics in the family just changed. You got older kids with feelings and feeling left out and reactions and all of that kind of stuff going on. Your time is even more divided. So having the conversation of we need to be on the same page on what we're both needing once this baby gets here. And I need you to be honest, as well as each of us initiating with one another, checking in. And I call it taking your temperature, being able to say, you know, once a week on a Sunday afternoon, how are you doing really? I mean, are you discouraged? Do you feel a part of? 
Is there something I can do that you feel like you're needing that I'm not giving? And it's hard to have those conversations because you're like, honest to God, if you tell me you need something, I'm going to lose my marbles. But it's the only way to stay connected through the transition of raising small kids. So I like that. I like the checking in, maybe if it's weekly, whatever. And because it is so true. And also love your analogy of the music changing because it is, it's like a whole new playing field, yeah. like whole new, whole new beat. And uh, and it's both parties are just trying to figure it out, but at least you're when you're communicating, you feel connected and you're doing it together. I think that's so cool and key because I didn't know to do that. And thank God we, we made it, but. Yeah. And we need to be aware that oftentimes we turn, we do can turn into the know-it-all in the house because we are home and, you know, we are there. This is, I'm just going statistically that we spend more time, we will spend more time trying to observe our children, know our children, that kind of thing. And so we can kind of get an attitude of we know it best. So how do we share and let them have their own relationship with their child? And it's different than us. And we may not love it all the time, but they are going to have to figure it out themselves as well. Yeah, that's so interesting that you say this. So much has come up for me in this conversation so far, but it's all so good. And I hope we can have you on so many more times because just diving into all the little things, my goodness, you're incredible. So thank you. But it's funny that you say this about the relationships, because for me, it was actually coming to terms, I would say more so with where I was almost codependent Mm. because I'm a very much an independent person. But my codependent tendencies really, I think, became clear to me. And I found that when my partner was asking, you know, what can I do? I'm not someone who typically asks for help, but, you know, sometimes you want to do that. I actually found myself sometimes apologizing and saying, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry that I gave you the impression that it was normal or even appropriate for me to be doing your laundry for you. Like all these things. I think that's a big deal. And you are talking about, you know, the back scratches or back tickles. I've had boyfriends, husbands, you know, they all have different preferences. And I'm always, I don't have a son, but I'm always cursing. (laughs) Others I find like, why would she do that? Because then they're like, oh, I really like having my back tickled. Like, really? (laughs) It it makes me roll my eyes. I don't know why. but, But just generally like that codependence, why would I even give you that? impression or that feeling that you need me to do this for you or whatever. Right. So, I mean, I think it goes back to maybe we should have been having those conversations when we were dating and, you know, first married or whatever, even before you have kids, that's what just came up for me as a huge aha moment as you've been talking through these things, because just that codependency piece. And I think for a lot of women, that's the thing, right? We want to be caregivers. We want to be people pleasers. We want to make everyone happy. And the fact is, is that our number one focus should be us. And then, of course, you have to care for a brand new baby, right? I mean, yeah, that's a thing in and of itself. But anyway, I just I wanted to have this conversation and dive a little bit deeper into it because a lot came up just now. And this conversation is so important. When are you having the conversation? And if you're having it after you have kids, 
which is almost too late, right? In yeah. 2020, where is your codependency? Where are your people pleasing issues coming into play with that? And maybe we need to take a step back and, and really set all those boundaries, right? Absolutely. And you're talking about the healthiest parent is the parent that knows themselves, both strengths and weaknesses. And that's what we're really talking about. If we are fortunate enough to have a partner helping us raise children is where are our strengths and where are the weaknesses? I mean, you're talking to the queen of codependency. It has met a need for me to be needed. And so I have, I'm an old woman now. (laughs) And I am finally getting in touch with that my codependency of being the helper of the world really has been feeding something in myself of feeling like I was needed. And I like that feeling. And so being able to let go, let my husband, my kids kind of do their, what they're needing and backing up has been a process for me through the years. And of course, as they get older, they demand it. But as little people, they never demanded it. I just kind of pushed my partner out of the way, thinking I could do it best. He was very strong and kind of rule oriented, likes very black and white. And so to me, I just took on this role of protecting the kids from that, where I should have been, girl, you're so loosey goosey on rules. Maybe this is a blessing to have somebody so different so that they can see both sides of the coin. And I think so many great traits for my own children and developed because he was so firm with them. So instead of fighting it, I had to see, I mean, my, my kids know how to work. Hands down, harder than anybody else. They're not afraid of it. And so consequently, at 18, they've all been out of the house, had their own jobs, their own apartments, and not in a, we don't care about the family thing, but in a, I I know how to do. And that really came for him. If I had anything to do with it, do with it, they probably still all be living with me. You know? <laughs> so well, I think that's probably part of why we choose the partner we do is the yin and yang. But I do think uh this is important to for people to hear, especially starting out, that it yeah. is normal to have a rocky or just in a huge adjustment when huge, huge when the baby comes into the house. And I think you know, movies or this, I mean, and I love that the system does not prep you for success. It's like, they talk, they touch a little bit about like, you might have a meltdown after you have a baby because postpartum, and then they're like how to get the baby out. And then they do like a little class, like how to barely keep them alive when you leave the hospital. (laughs) And that is it. And I'm like, what, how is you shouldn't be letting me go right now? You know? And so I think if you're not going to get it there, it's so good to talk about the things that people that aren't the shiny, happy hallmark things that is the real deal. So these poor new families aren't scared that they're going to fail when they hear that the majority are in the same driver's seat. Like they're in the same car. We're all been there and we've made it. And this is how some tips and tools of how you can make it a little bit better in this whole new realm that you're in. And so, okay. So I'll give you two little things to think about. First off, it's not uncommon for first time moms, especially, but it happens even, you know, with second time moms. Second, I, I have seen that the second child is the biggest adjustment for most people. 
that that really rocks your world because you're kind of outnumbered if you're by yourself with them. So that seems to be as well as the mama guilt. You don't get it when you have a third or a fourth or a fifth. It doesn't happen. When you give birth to your second child, as the placenta is coming out, you give birth to this huge guilt thing that lasts for a very long time. That You feel like you've just damaged your firstborn by bringing a sibling into the world. Normal, normal, normal. And we just have to work through it. And then when they start to react and have poor behavior, which is very normal, either immediately or at about four months after the baby's been born, we start to see the toddlers and the three-year-olds really struggle. But the guilt that the moms feel is gargantuan. And in that guilt, they start to push away their partner. So that's one thing. The other thing is just the obvious, I am touched out. If one more person comes near me and tries to touch me, I'm going to scratch their eyes out. <laughs> and you feel that way with every baby, really super normal. The sad part is, is that we don't give ourselves or our partner permission to talk about it and to say the loneliness that happens, the wandering in the brain that happens. And it is a very common thing that I hear on my dad's day is they miss their partner because they feel like they've lost them to somebody else. And they kind of have. Mm -hmm. So it's a growing process for everybody. There's not a right and wrong in this whole thing. They're not being big old babies because they feel that way. It's just they miss the connection, not just the sexual, but they miss kind of, for most men, you're kind of their person. Right. And so in that, they, they miss you. And it happens with every baby. Right. Like, oh, there she goes again, you know. I'll see her in nine months. So the recommendation, I mean, we used to call it date nights, not reality. Go for walks together, you know, figure out if your mom can come and stay for a half hour so that you guys can just sit back in your bedroom and talk or whatever the need is. A lot of gals have started going to, or couples going to each other's offices for lunch if they already have childcare. And they have found that to be really helpful because the kids are already where they're going to be. Or if they're, you know, you have somebody that comes in to help. Right. For their own quality time. Yes. You got to have it. You have to have some kind of connection time. And late at night is not when it should happen. So true. That's when the fights start. We're too tired and we can get triggered really easily. Uh, And then the the blaming starts and all that. Yeah. And I think for me, just part what takes down my anxiety and the thinking you're like going to lose it all when you're a new family and just chaos is just the knowing it's normal and that it's a stage and people get through it. And then tips and tricks of how to just navigate through it and make sure you're each touching base and do the best you can. Yeah. And you, and if you need to text, you text during the day. Yeah. Whatever they're coming home to, it'd be really nice if we would text each other. You're coming home to a disaster, FYI, I'm a mess, and there's no food in the house. And that way, no one's surprised. And it can go either direction on whoever gets home first or who the primary at home is or any of that. That's a great idea. Yeah, the other thing that I picked up on that you said that was a, a really profound thing, I think, to say was you don't seem to have strict rules of this is the way you do it. And 
I think for me, that was the other big piece, especially looking back in hindsight. Thank goodness I actually am someone who is willing to just follow my own gut and things okay. and my intuition on things because I remember there's so many social norms and this is how you should be doing it. And oh, that person looks like such a great model of a mother. And I should definitely just, they've written a book, so I should just do exactly what they do. And I remember things like little things like my mom saying to me, oh, well, we would never wake a sleeping baby and we would never do that or this side or the other thing. Mm -hmm. And especially hearing that from your mom who like, oh, you had three kids. You did a pretty darn good job generally, right? It really, you take it to heart and you're like, well, maybe I shouldn't be trusting what I know will work the best for me and know to be true. And then there, I think there are these expectations of, you know, you were talking about sleep deprivation. Sleep was a big thing for me. And I didn't really believe in long-term sleep deprivation because I'm like, surely there's a better way. And I'm like, sure, great. I found a better way. And that's great. And I want to share that better way. So that's a really big deal for me. And that's something I'm passionate about, you know, if you value sleep or whatever, but I think trusting your gut instinct on so many of these things is such a big deal. And I don't know that we are told by anyone, trust what you know is probably best for you and for your family, because you probably do know best. I mean, health issues aside, all the things, you know, your, your pediatrician knows best on a lot of those health issues. But aside from that, I think there's a lot that we should be more confident on in terms of trusting ourselves. I agree a thousand percent on that. Somehow we read books or we listen to podcasts or we whatever, and we just override what I feel like God gave us as a natural instinct for this particular child. And it may be different for another child that you have. And But to go with your gut on it. My fourth child came out of the womb screaming. And she did not stop screaming for 18 solid months. I mean, really, honest to God, if the circus had come by, I was going to donate her because she was so difficult. But I had this gut feeling something wasn't right and no one could figure it out. And it wasn't until she was five years old that we found out that she had severe epilepsy and was her seizures were not happening the way you would see a seizure until she turned five. But it was that gut something that I gave that kid a lot of grace. And I held her and I, she, I wore her in a backpack for, I think, over two years because I still had life to do. And yet she needed to be held and touched. And it was the only thing that calmed her down. So, I mean, I got really great calf muscles, but I put her in that backpack and carried that child everywhere. Just because my gut kept saying, this is not a personality thing. It just doesn't feel like personality. It's so good. And I just, I think it's all so helpful and knowing just being coming from that solid place of what's really important. Mm -hmm. And like you said, getting to know each child. And we've talked about this before, and it's something I'm very passionate about where I feel like moms will give each other more grace. And when you're at a playground and one might be different, you know, and whatever is just knowing that all kids are different. And so they're doing their best with their children. 
and that you might not have a difficult first, but they do. And, you know, it's so I just always try and have tried because I always feel like judgment is an invitation for karma in my world. (laughs) I swear, I'm like, just like, if I say, oh my God, what a mess. Like, oh, 10 minutes later. And when those poor moms and their kids having a meltdown and they're giving you those almost puppy dog eyes of, I am losing it. I'm like, it could be, it easily could be me. You're doing great. Like Good. you think Wonderful. I'm not because, and I've learned that because I'm, I mean, we've all been there and, yeah. and it's just like you said, how every child is different and just bringing up that we're just, you know, finding our own, but coming from those big, important places of connection and really what our child is needing in our own way from the whole spectrum. I pray for a world that we can all just be, yeah. is it what a strong community you can have when you're just allowing people to just do their thing. You do you and I'm going to do me. And then the kids get to thrive. We're thriving all, all rainbows and sunshine. <laughs> but remember the focus is on trying to keep as they're growing and changing and as we're growing and changing as women, yeah. as parents, you know, all of that is that our goal is to stay connected. Yes. And what that means is emotionally available. And when we're not emotionally available, we've got to figure out why aren't we? If they're not emotionally available and they're starting to attach to their friends more than they are to the family of origin, we need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Because long-term adult health relationally for all adults comes from what is gleaned, learned experience in the family of origin. And so this attachment thing uh, cannot be undersold on how important it is. And I'm not talking about unhealth, where the mama needs this child for her sense of self. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a codependency with a child who then is not capable. We want to raise can-do kids. But they have found that the roots of adult happiness come in those first three to five years of real connection, healthy, free, open, accepting, available connection with our primary caregivers. So we cannot undersell that or under discuss it or under promote it. And when our kids' behavior starts to go sideways, their behavior is now telling us, I need something. So we try to connect before we correct. It's so easy for us as parents to go right to the behavior, try to get it to stop because it's as annoying as all get up. We try to get it to stop or they're embarrassing us or I don't have time for this and go down the list. But what's really happening is they are screaming. I am, I've lost my connection. And so I need to reconnect somehow. And it's, for a whole nother time, but that's why we have, we are discouraging timeouts now that they are very ineffective. And what little people are needing is what we call a time in. And that's that come sit in my lap. They don't have to look at you to turn them away around, but some kind of physical holding touch, talking in their ear. Yeah, you're really struggling right now, but mama's got you. I'm right here. Yeah, I don't like this either. Oh, it's so hard. Yes, I know you are so overspent. That was a horrible thing that happened. And you're empathizing, 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 and yet at the same time putting a boundary on them. 
yeah, we're not going to act like that. That's really hard for mama when you, when you kick and scream like that. So you're just going to sit here and, and sit in mama's lap. So those kinds of things, we're trying to connect. And then away from the tantrum, away from whatever just happened, 20 minutes later, a half hour later, after a nap, after they've eaten, whatever, is when we then have the conversation. And the same is true of your junior high and high school kids. We don't go to the, if the teacher calls you and something bad happened at school or you catch wind that there was a disagreement at whatever on, on the playground, don't deal with it right away. Let them come home, eat, connect with them, remind them how much you love them. And then afterwards is when you can talk about, tell me, tell me what happened. I want to hear from you. And that's that, you know, asking the questions and really do the active listening. And then we can correct. It's so good. And had I not heard it from you, thank God, back in the day, I wouldn't know. I just yes. wouldn't know. And there, you're just looking at your kid freaking out and misbehaving. Yeah. And then, but really, like you said, it's that that cry. And nine out of 10 times or 10 out of 10, if you just spend that time with them, it's like, poof, it's gone. Yeah. Down yeah. on their eye level with some touch. Food always helps, <laughs> you know, because we don't Adults know too. everybody. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is so good, Annette. Ah, oh, it's just so helpful. Barbara has been sharing so many amazing nuggets from Nanette, and they really are so good. And even though her focus is on supporting parents with babies and children, zero to three, up to six years old, I really feel that all parents could learn so much from listening to her. We recently shared how Nanette protects her piece on Thriving Family Podcast because it's so good for us all to listen to, and we just love hearing all the different ways people fill their cups each day, and there are just so many great ideas. But as for this episode, there were so many great takeaways, and a few of mine were, one, we will make a lot of mistakes as parents, so we just need to do it right the majority of the time. Her 51% rule is just so good and it gives us so much grace as parents. Two, the repair can add so much, including really enforcing the connection with your children at every age. And this also just applies to every relationship that we have. And I like how Nanette gets into relationships with our partners and others, not just with our kids in this episode. She talks about being both available as well as humble. Three, be careful about the myths we believe about parenting and how it's supposed to be. She said that children have not changed in terms of the connection and the attachment pieces that they really need, but really our society has created essentially social constructs around it. And those are the pieces that are always shifting. So touch, eye contact, and how important it is to cultivate that over the years. Four, be a student of each of your children because each child is so different in so many ways and they all have individual needs, which of course makes it a little bit tricky, but it's really good insight to think about how does a child like to receive touch and also emphasizing that eye contact again, but knowing that if you have boys or men in your life that it might be more effective if you're walking alongside them. Or for instance, if you're driving in a car, that can be more effective just looking straight ahead and chatting. Five, your world gets so rocked as a couple when you have a baby. And Nanette talks about how important it is to have dad involved if that's what your family dynamic is. So she tries to really integrate dad when she's working with couples. 
and families. And then she gets into, of course, the importance of parents talking about what you need and checking in with each other. Taking the temperature is what she calls it. And I could go on forever, but she also talks about the second child and the mummy guilt and even her suggestions when you have older children and ideas like meeting your husband for lunch or coffee in the middle of the day to find that connection. All of her tips and ideas are just so amazing. And I really hope you found this episode as helpful as I did and that you reach out to Nanette. Everything's linked in the show notes. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you again for joining us today. We know how many other things you could be doing, and it means the world to us that you're here. We hope you always get something valuable from our podcast and that you feel supported. If you have a question for us about our content or anything else, please leave it in your review of this podcast, or you can send us an email or DM us on Instagram. We're here for you, so let us know what topics would be helpful and that you're interested in. You can join our membership by clicking on the link in the show notes. You are never alone in parenting, and we're here to support you at every stage. If you know anyone that would be inspired or supported by this podcast, please share it with them. We provide content every week, so please subscribe wherever you're listening from. If you leave a review, you'll have the opportunity to win a gift that we absolutely love. We're so excited about this giveaway. We only introduce brands to our community that align with our values, and Barbara and I both love the Now Tone Therapy System. This yoga for your mind is one of the most simple ways to relax, relieve stress and anxiety. The creators recommend listening twice a day for only three minutes to receive these benefits or to listen as often as you like. And if you buy them, there's a risk-free three-month trial period. What we like best about Now Tone Therapy System is that it's something everyone can make time for. My family likes to listen first thing in the morning and at the end of each day. It's the easiest and most relaxing path to mindfulness daily. We'll link to this amazing product in the show notes below. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.